Hello and welcome to Maven America. These are immigration stories told by the people who've lived them and I'm so glad that you're here and you're listening. One thing I've learned to do since I moved to this country is to be less self-deprecating. Americans generally refuse to put themselves down and I'm trying to be more confident too. Maybe if I wasn't such an idiot, I'd be better. No, wait. Uh, I mean, I am an absolute legend and this podcast is the greatest thing to ever sneak into your ears. I mean, actually, this is a great episode. Truly, I learned a lot and I loved meeting our guest. I think you will too. Because I really, from the bottom of my heart, believe that if you're going through stuff and you feel bad about yourself, maybe stop paying attention to yourself so much and start paying attention to helping other people. It doesn't mean that your problems go away, but it, it makes you see things differently and it makes you see the world a little differently. That's my guest, Yemi Amu, and she is coming right up. We talk about all sorts of things, farming, Eddie Murphy, eating disorders, being single versus being married. And on that last note, regular listeners will know that each week we start the show with my best girl, Mona, who comes through with the statistics to illuminate some bigger picture about the world. And today I asked her about the gender split between countries and also marriage stats. Dada, please. Dada, please. So I'm here with Mona Chalabi. Chalabi. <laughs> the cadence isn't right. Try again. In Ireland, we say Chalabi. No, you don't. You have no Chalabis in Ireland. I know where they all are and none of them are in Ireland. I'm here with Mona Chalabi. No, Maeve. <laughs> so this is Mona Chalabi. What's your specialty? Data. 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 That's how I say it too. That's how everyone should say it. But we live in America now. Mm-hmm. But even some Americans say data. I think it depends on the state. Yeah. I think if you're like in a state of distress, you say data. <laughs> so, you know, what I wanted to talk to you about today is, mm-hmm. um, is there life. an equal <laughs> kind of, yeah, no. <laughs> is there an equal split of men and women in every country? No, there actually isn't. Um, so you would have thought it'd be 50-50, mm-hmm. but actually I looked at a whole bunch of countries and there was loads and loads of countries that fall outside of that. So I got the data from the World Bank. Um, There's actually loads and loads of different reasons. But one of them is just a preference for boys in countries like India and China. And because those countries' populations are so huge, it affects the global demographics. What's the most female place on Earth? So the most female place is actually Latvia, which is 54% female. What is the most male place on Earth? So the extremes that are male are like way, way, way more extremes. There's one place that is 27 percent female oh my god can you guess where it is like the wild west in the old days <laughs> no 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 it's this data is from 2015 we're talking okay. now um i think it's like in the middle east yeah it's the united arab emirates and actually all of the other countries that are like after it on the list are also super super male are also arab countries so it's qatar oman bahrain saudi arabia and kuwait um, do you know, can you say why that is? I can kind of guess, but... You Go can, on, what's your guess? That, that um, like, because of the industry in that country. Yeah. Um, that they, they're they usually male-dominated. I mean, there's also a lot of female migrant labour to those countries as well, to be, like, nurses and nannies and all of those things. But you are basically right, it's, like, economic migration. Um, so those Arab countries kind of only function thanks to, like, these huge numbers of men that come in from other countries. 
So do people get married here in America? Do you know about when people get married or pair off into like hetero couples? <laughs> um, yeah, so the Census Bureau has got statistics on this. Um, and in 2015, the typical age that a man would get married would be 29.2 years. And for women, it was 27.1 years. And actually, this is one of my like recurring gripes about society is these two bonus years that men get and it's just so persistent this age gap in first marriage so wait do you have the data to compare american marriage rates with um say nigerian marriage rates Mm -hmm. yeah it's not perfectly like for like each country kind of collects this data in a slightly different way and they also update their numbers at a different time so the latest numbers i have for nigeria from 2005 which means not like a great comparison but anyway in 2005 men in nigeria got married at the age of 28.6 years so about the same as men in the u.s Mm -hmm. but women got married at the age of 23 so a lot earlier than women in the u.s wow I wanted to find a country where women typically get married like a little bit later than men. Yeah. And it doesn't fucking exist, obviously. For a second, I was like, oh, my God, it's Ireland. But actually, Ireland and Bermuda are bottom of the list in terms of the age gap. So it's only 1.2 years in Ireland, meaning that men in Ireland get married at the age of 33, which is super old by these global standards. And women typically get married for the first time at the age of 31.8 years. It's pretty close. It's funny, isn't it? Yeah. And the biggest gap is in Senegal, where it's 8.4 years. So men in Senegal get married typically at the age of like 30 years and women, uh, for women, it's 21.6 years. Interesting, no? Well, thank you so much for individually counting all those people for us, Mona. No problem, mate. No problem. Where's my husband? (laughs) I was promised a husband if I came and did the podcast. That was Data Please with Mona Chalabi and she's doing some very cool data sketches for the show. She's got plenty of time because she doesn't have a boyfriend. And you can check them out on our Facebook and Instagram page at Maven America. All right, let's get into it. Are you ready to meet our guest? I hope so. I certainly was, although I wasn't really ready to meet her friends or I guess they're her co-workers. They gave me the creeps. This is like so stupid and none of your concern, but like I really don't like fish. Oh, really? I'm like... When it, the last time I went into an aquarium, I fainted. That was me meeting my guest today, an aquaponics farmer in a Snoopy sweater and a head wrap with a smile that can light up a fish farm. My name is Yemi Amu. I grew up in Lagos, Nigeria, and I have been living in New York for 20 years. In this series, we hear about change all the time because obviously moving to a new country is one of the biggest changes somebody can make. Yemi moved to a new continent and she changed careers from being a social worker to a farmer. And actually, change is something she studied. Change is the hardest thing for human beings. We're not really good with change. We don't handle change very well. So any kind of, um, whether you're a dietitian, whether you're a nutritionist, whether you're working with alcohol, smoking cessation, drug addiction, you're really dealing with change. And no matter how much information your client has about how and why they should change their behavior, just getting them through that change is a difficult process. But before we get to that, I just know that many of you listening are not able to concentrate because you're like, what? what is aquaponics? Is that when elderly people do Zumba really slow in the water? Can I smoke aquaponics? Should I name my twins Aqua and Ponics? So aquaponics is a growing system of raising both fish and plants in a recirculating system. All that 
means is that you're raising fish and you're taking that wastewater from fish that would normally be thrown out and um, using that to to raise vegetables. And then in turn, the vegetables are taking up that waste as nutrients, and now you have clean water that you can direct back to your fish tank. You know what? I call that surf and turf, and that is a phrase I just invented. We'll go back to the farm later, but first of all, I wanted to know how Yemi got here. I was 16, yes. I landed in JFK, Mm -hmm. and then we came to Queens, and I was not sure if I was in America. (laughs) Jamaica, Queens was not my um, vision of America. Yeah, I was totally confused. I asked my dad, who came with me, like, are we in America? (laughs) You know, it's funny because I had visited before for holidays, um, and we stayed in Westchester. So that was what I had in mind. Very suburban, very clean, mm-hmm. very white. Yeah. Um, and then I was in Jamaica, Queens, and it was very black. And I wasn't sure if I'd landed at the right place. <laughs> and then I wrote my uh, high school friend a letter saying, I'm in in Queens, New York. And then she wrote me back going, oh, my God, Queens as in coming to America, Queens. <laughs> And Have I you hadn't, seen that movie? yes, but I hadn't made the connection <laughs> until she said, I said, coming to America. <laughs> we go to New York. But where in New York can one find a woman with grace, elegance, taste, and culture? Who is like living her life inspired by the Eddie Murphy, <laughs> the problematic Eddie Murphy film. <laughs> a woman suitable for a king. Queens. Mm. So who moved with you? Your whole family? No, just my dad and myself. What prompted you to move, like, with just your dad as a 16-year-old? Was it your choice? It was definitely my choice. I'd been wanting to leave Nigeria since I was about 12. I just decided I wanted to experience something else. As a 12-year-old, I felt like I could see my life laid out before me. Um, I knew what college I would go to. I knew relatively what kind of job I would end up in and when I would get married. It just seemed really predictable. I would have married someone who my mom's family approved of and who had the right name and the right pedigree, the right education, so on and so forth. I would definitely have been married right after right after college. 25 would have been, girl, you're getting old. Uh, <laughs> Probably when I was in college, I would also be husband hunting, you know, because that's how it works. Parents are like worried about you settling down and being married. There are so many reasons why people leave the place they were born. Yemi's reasons sort of chimed with my own. Finding independence, not following the path expected of me, escaping social norms. My sisters and friends back home, they all have children and they're married and I don't. And nobody bats an island about that here in New York. Yemi recognized the value of this when she was just a child herself. I don't even know if the marriage will be great, but you're supposed to stay in it. (laughs) You know, it would be about the status. It's about being married. There's a status applied to being married. My mother is a single mom and a divorced woman. There's a stigma to that, you know, so I would be working really hard to avoid that. This made me think about the great writer Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie and her TEDx Houston speech titled We Should All Be Feminist when she spoke of what it's like to be young and female in Lagos and the expectations on women there. Because I am female, I'm expected to aspire to marriage. 
I'm expected to make my life choices, always keeping in mind that marriage is the most important. Now, marriage can be a good thing. It can be a source of joy and love and mutual support. But why do we teach girls to aspire to marriage and we don't teach boys the same? Of course, gender norms and societal expectations are not exclusive to Nigeria. But you have to ask yourself the question I ask myself every morning. What would Beyonce do? And the answer is, she would use a clip of that speech and she would be amazing. Yemi's father decided to move to New York. He'd studied here in the US when he was younger and he had a green card so he could get her a visa. He told her she just had to finish school and academically, Yemi was a high achiever. She'd skipped two grades and at 16, she was about to do her final exams. He literally said to me a week and a half before, I'm leaving for New York next Saturday. (sighs) And you should come. I bought your tickets. That's how it happened. There was no discussion. My mom was extremely upset. Yemi's mom being upset was not a huge concern. Her parents had divorced when Yemi was 12, and she and her mom had a rocky relationship ever since. We were not getting along when I left, which I was a teenager, so of course I wasn't getting along with my mom. Uh, My mom was a single mom, struggling really hard, working a lot, so she wasn't always nice. Um, She was also dealing with the shame of being divorced and dealing with the trauma of my father walking away from all of us. It was a battle. Uh, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to leave, too, because I, unha- I wasn't even happy there. Yeah. In hindsight, I would be less on my dad's side. Because I was also really angry at him, but I was projecting that anger onto my mom and made him the hero. He left us, really, when I was 12. Um, and you always love the one that isn't there, right? That's the person whose love you want, really, is the one who left. How long were you in New York before you went back home again for a visit? Five years. Long time. Yemi and her father moved into a small apartment with her aunt and her cousins, and yet again, but this time in a different way, a way she found truly shocking, she did not fit in with expectations of how she should be. I was a little bit of a disappointment to them, I think, in a lot of ways. My accent, I spoke English too well. So I wasn't the image of what what the African cousin should be, and I'm not really sure what that image was. And it wasn't just from them, it was from other people, like, why do you sound like that? Why do you why do you uh, speak like a white person? Are you really African? <laughs> why do you eat with a fork and knife? <laughs> oh no, yeah. I'm sorry for laughing. <laughs> but it's true. The crazy expectations some Americans had about Africans, and note that it was Africa, no more specific than that, as if Africa was a country. Well, that was just one rude awakening for Gemi. I I cleaned toilets with my dad. That was extremely humbling. As a job? As a job, yeah. He got this uh, janitorial job um, because my dad is who he is. He'd worked it out with the the owner of the company that he would do some of the work but eventually be able to buy into the company. Um, So I would go with him and clean offices and clean toilets. And that was hard. 
also, that was not we. I grew up with um, help with house help. That was another thing. We had a cook. We had gardener. We mm-hmm. had someone who washed the clothes. There was always someone to do something. Mm-hmm. So at the moment where I was cleaning the toilet, I was thinking, "Oh shit." Her father's career in business, Yemi's academic career, accounted for nothing here in the U.S. I was told, I remember meeting with a counselor. She told me, listen, just because it's an A in your country doesn't mean it's an A here. We don't know how to translate these grades. So go back to high school. I think the best thing for you to do is go back to high school, take the SATs. And I just burst into tears because I was not going to do that. You know, just made me realize how... um, being an immigrant in this country is really rough. There's no respect for immigrants. Your your degrees don't count. Your um, your life experience doesn't mean anything. You literally have to start at the bottom. We're taking a quick break now. We'll see you after. Welcome back to Maven America. I'm Maeve and I'm in America and that's why I'm the best man for this job. JK, I'm not even a man, I'm a woman. And before this, I was a teenager. I still look back at that time with a shudder and feel really glad to be out of it. For me, the usual adolescent torment was augmented by braces, headgear and an allergic reaction to that headgear that left me with a Joker-style rash around my mouth. Hi, boys. Yeah. Being a teenager is tricky for a lot of us, but in Yemi's case, as a 16-year-old immigrant, everything she knew was turned upside down. Everything. I asked her if she figured out a way to cope with that, and her answer is probably familiar to a lot of us. I just, like, hunkered down on my eating disorder. (laughs) (laughs) Yemi had bulimia, an eating disorder characterized by a cycle of binge eating followed by compensatory behaviors like vomiting or over-exercising. Another not fun part of bulimia is that frequently your self-esteem is overly related to your body image. For Yemi, this had all started back in Nigeria. Yeah, from, I want to say 13 or 14 till about, till my mid-20s. Wow. Yeah. I think it's really difficult to kick that one. Mm -hmm. And so did you... Did it stay steady all the time, get worse when you got here? or? Oh, it definitely got worse when I got here. It's a really interesting question how eating disorders and immigration are related. That's our context queen for today, Dr. Cynthia Bulick. She's the director of two different centers of excellence for eating disorders, one in the University of North Carolina and one at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. Immigration is a huge upheaval, and there are constant large and small adjustments you have to make every day. And one of the things we do know with eating disorders is change is a risk factor. And it's really one of the bigger changes that you can encounter in your life. So change is one risk factor. And I asked Dr. Bulik, what were some others? She said being female and being an adolescent. Yemi hit both of those. And then, of course, there's living in the U.S. itself. And there was just so much food. There's just so much junk food. Um, in Nigeria, you kind of have to, like, go out of your way to get a donut. <laughs> I'm never going to Nigeria. <laughs> it's different now a little bit. But um, growing up, when I was growing up, there was one donut place called Mr. Biggs. Mr. Biggs? Yeah. <laughs> huh? There are Dunkin' Donuts everywhere here. There's Krispy Kreme everywhere. You don't have to work too hard to get ice cream. Ice cream was something we had on Sundays, you know, because you had to go to the fancy supermarket to pick it up. 
I totally relate. As a kid, I knew maybe three flavors of ice cream and it came in a block that you sliced. I know. <laughs> and here? Well, I went to my local supermarket on a reporting trip. Creme brulee, pumpkin, cookie dough, peanut butter chocolate, cookie dough cheesecake, macaroon original. Maybe you think it's demented of me to stand in a supermarket muttering types of ice cream into my phone at 11pm on a Tuesday night. Well, so did the security man. Birthday cake, ice cream, peanut butter cup, ice cream, ice cream, van bean light, lemon with Ma'am, candy. can I help you? Oh no, thank you. Sorry, no, I'm good. But listener, I married him. It turns out Yemi and I are not the only immigrants bamboozled by all this food and so many types of it and just how available it is. Here's Dr. Bulick again. One of the first papers I ever wrote in this field was I spoke with two Russian immigrants. One developed anorexia and one developed bulimia soon after emigrating to the United States. And in addition to just the differences in the food, they were overwhelmed by the number of choices there were. You know, they came from Russia at a time where you would stand in line for hours just to get a bottle of ketchup. And they told these stories about being in the grocery store and especially looking at the cereal aisle and just being overwhelmed by the choice. You know, there were hundreds of different types of cereal. And for someone who's already sort of anxious about immigrating and all of the new demands and new relationships and new foods, that choice just paralyzed them. And they could barely even make a decision about what to eat, let alone make healthy choices as they were immigrating and integrating into the American lifestyle. In any way, was it a helpful thing to you? I don't know, like a like a kind of a release valve or like something that you always had with you or is that a weird thing to think? No, it was a place to put my energy. It wasn't necessarily a positive outlet for my energy. Um, But there was also no one directing me. My dad was there, but he didn't really have the skills to be a parent. And he was just working. And he was doing the best he could in that way and make sure that, you know, um, I was healthy, but he didn't realize that I actually wasn't healthy. And I think I needed an outlet, and that was the outlet. I'm lucky that it wasn't. drugs or alcohol or something else. Hearing this from Yemi made me remember this really good bit that I saw San Francisco-based stand-up comedian Liz Ridge do about her eating disorder and about how, for many of us, eating is the most accessible and most acceptable way to get high. (laughs) By the way, you can tell people you have an eating disorder, but unless you are extremely underweight or extremely overweight, nobody gives a shit. They're like, oh, boo-hoo, you use food to cope with your problems. Well, at least you're not a drug addict, right? Which I think is totally unfair. Because it's an honor to be growing up in New Hampshire, I had no idea where to find drugs. <laughs> the cool kids wouldn't tell me. I asked them. I was like, hey, guys, what you doing? Drugs? <laughs> no? just aren't cutting it anymore. (laughs) Who am I kidding? Oreos will always cut it. (laughs) That said, eating disorders can be super dangerous. Dr. Bulick told me that anorexia is the most deadly of any psychiatric disorder, with people dying by suicide or complications from starvation. It's worse even than depression or bipolar disorder. 
Now, that does not at all minimize the risk associated with bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorder because suicide risk is elevated in both of them as well, as is mortality risk. So lots of people get other medical problems like gastrointestinal problems, um, musculoskeletal problems like osteoporosis, um, and increased mortality. So these are not benign conditions. And to be treated properly, you need to have medical care and you need to have psychological care. Um, and that really is the package that's required to get over these illnesses. I asked Yemi if she'd ever reached out for help. I really wasn't worried until um, about when I was about 22. And um, I started getting these massive headaches. And I was having difficulty controlling my bladder. And I was bursting my um, eye vessel all the time. That's when From I, the violence of yeah, up. yeah, and that's when I started thinking, oh, maybe this isn't good. And then I said something uh, one day at work to one of my coworkers, who was an older woman and was very sweet and kind to me. Um, I just told her, said, throwing up, and she sat me down and said, it's not good. You shouldn't be doing this to yourself. You're hurting yourself. And no one had ever put it to me that way before. And you should see someone. You should talk to someone. It sounds like you're hurting. I don't think it's about food. I think it's some something else. And did you seek treatment then? Did I did. Mm-hmm. I went to one therapy session and I never went back. Oh. Because... A lot of the cultural stuff that I hated when I first moved here started coming up again with a therapist, um, and I didn't like it. Um, like what? The fact that I was African and I was throwing up to her was a big deal. She was uh, American, white She was American, person? white woman, yes. And she was still trying to wrap her head around the fact that this young black girl and then African is throwing up. So that was a huge turnoff for me. Also, I have to say that I already was not comfortable going in. In addition to the fact that she seemed, she seemed really um, mystified by the fact that I was Nigerian and bulimic, we started talking about my mom, and I could not do that. I could not sit there with this strange woman and make my mom look bad. As a therapist, you need to ask your patients to tell you and to teach you about their culture because they know your, their culture much better than you ever will. And they will help guide you through understanding what about your interventions work and what about your interventions need to be adapted in order to meet them and their family and their culture where they're at. One of the things that's really important in my field and is central to the work I do with patients is helping them, again, to regain peace with their body and peace with food. Let the healing begin. It's not easy, though, as anybody who has struggled with an eating disorder will know. And on top of that, Yemi was busy, really busy, looking after other people. I studied health and nutrition behavior modification. And at at the time that I was in grad school, I was working at a housing facility for formerly homeless mentally ill adults. And my education was so great because I learned um, the theories of change. I learned about what it takes to get people to change, why people change, why people don't change. This knowledge helped Yemi to understand her own predicament. She was stuck in a cycle of bulimia, but she gradually managed to find her own therapy. 
and figure out a way that she could change her own life and begin to recover. She took an Ayurveda course almost at random. Ayurveda is a holistic healing system developed in India thousands of years ago. And one branch of it is nutrition. This Ayurvedic class, which was a holistic nutrition, Indian holistic nutrition, and um, I would learn about food and how food was healthy and a positive thing and how food could heal. It made a huge difference in my life because I was obsessed with food. And this allowed me to shift my obsession to something more positive. This class she took and the community she found with her teacher and classmates, it helped Yemi a lot. It was just such a beautiful experience that it began my transformation. Um, I didn't just suddenly stop, but suddenly the the yearning and the need to throw, throw up and that weird focus on food went away. Change didn't happen all at once, but it did happen. And gradually, Yemi began to see food as a friend and not a foe. Around the same time, she began a roof garden with her clients who lived in a new housing unit in Crown Heights in Brooklyn. It wasn't easy. So we decided to grow vegetables on the roof. And uh, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I felt like I knew what I was doing because I studied agricultural science in Nigeria. So I felt I knew how to grow food. When you were like 14? I know. (laughs) (laughs) The first year, we literally went to a garden. We turned, one of the clients died and we turned his bed literally took his bed apart and converted it into a raised bed and put it on the roof. Mm-hmm. And then we went to a garden supply store <laughs> and bought chicken manure. <laughs> <laughs> and we grew in straight chicken manure, which was terrible. Like, so, you know, one does, no one grew. You mixed it with soil, though. We mixed it with some soil, but not enough. Mm-hmm. So, you know, chicken manure is... A dressing. It's not the main ingredient. <laughs> it was the main ingredient for us. So oh, no. nothing grew well. Everything burned. We knew nothing. Um, but eventually I started reading and learning and we applied for a grant that also came with a mentor. Um, and that was probably the best two, three years of my life because suddenly I realized what I needed to be doing. You know, it just made so much sense. Yemi's farming career took off from there. She now manages two farm sites in Bedsty, Brooklyn, and she has that 2,500 square foot aquaponics farm in Bushwick. It's called Oko Farm, and it sits perfectly between a smoke shop and a liquor store. She runs tours of it in the summer. You should totally go. She showed me some tomatoes. Well, she says tomatoes. This was like, yeah, we'll eat some. If you actually, um, you can oven roast them, which is also really good. Like toss them in some olive oil, mm. salt and pepper, and then make like a balsamic um, kind of dressing to go over it. I did it recently with a group of kids. Oh. With like, It was honey, balsamic, a little bit of chili after we roasted it and like tossed it together and put it on a crostini. So good. Because when I told them we were going to eat green tomatoes, they were like, uh, no. <laughs> Ex-boyfriends of mine and regular listeners to this show will know that I often make assumptions about things that turn out to be sort of wrong. And I had this idea in my mind that urban farming was a hipster pursuit, you know, like guys with beards. Oh, my God. Yes. A guy with a beard. That's exactly what. (laughs) For people of color, it's not a hipster thing. For people of color, it's about food security, food justice, um, you know, just creating more access to healthy food in the community. And for some of it, it's just being able to earn an income, um, working with the land, 
my background is nutrition education. So for me, farming is an extension of that. I just happen to find aquaponics interesting and different. Um, all the people of color that I know that are farmers are doing it because um, they come from communities where people lack access to healthy foods. And farming is a form of activism and food advocacy. So it depends on who you are. There are tons of immigrants, especially South Asian immigrants, that grow food in Brooklyn. They're growing food in their backyards, they're sneaking into empty lots and growing food. And to me, that's the, when I think of an urban farmer, that's the picture in my head, is those Bangladeshi women like breaking, you know, locks and abandoned lots and like growing food and feeding their families or growing like peppers and um, cucumbers and buckets in front of their home. That's, to me, that's what urban farming means. As the planes flew overhead and sirens roared on the busy street outside, Yeme explained that her work is not all altruistic. She's a businesswoman too. It is a for-profit venture. The farm itself operates as a non-profit because we have it from the city. But Oko Farms, the business that manages it, is a for-profit because I have to pay my bills. Nothing is... <laughs> yeah. Nothing is... wearing great. a huge fur coat at the moment <laughs> and <laughs> a crown. <laughs> uh, so yes, it, it, it's food activism, but it's also empowerment through food, right? You can't really, we live in a capitalist society. People need to be able to pay their bills. That's the bottom line. Um, but in the process, you can still um, feed people or you can empower people to feed themselves. So a lot of what we do is teach people how to grow food. Yemi is showing up in other ways too. As a woman and as a black person, she relishes her role as, well, a role model. I want to be a successful woman farmer. I want young women to look at me and be like, huh, that's a career I can go into. I think there are just a few of us. Um, so it's becoming more important now just, just to be a face. I don't consider myself an activist. I'm really not. Um, I just, I'm growing food because it, it just, it is my therapy. I love food and being in nature is so good for me. Um, it's a way for me to make a difference in the world. You know, it's how I found my purpose. And if I can inspire people in the process, if I can pass on tangible skills to other people in the process, then I'm happy. I asked Yemi how her relationship with her mom is today, and she said it's changed a lot for the better. They talk on the phone and they go on vacations together all around the world. Unlike Yemi herself, though, her mom worries about the fact that she's not yet married and she worries about farming as a career. But maybe the internet will save us all. My mom is now, she's very proud because um, she Googles me. <laughs> yeah, you're Googleable. I'm Googleable. And she's like, okay, whatever this thing is, it must be working. Seems like you have a really positive relationship with food now. I do. I definitely have a positive relationship with food now. But more importantly, I have a, more, I have a better relationship with myself. And working with food has helped that because suddenly I, f I felt good about myself because I was doing something that I loved and I was getting um, positive feedback from people. Also, farming happens to be a very physical job. So my focus was no longer on, is no longer on how I look, but what my body can do. So if you can like flip a tractor tire, <laughs> pick up a bale of hay. I can shovel. <laughs> I do think about that with eating disorders and how prevalent they are and all of this energy that all these amazing people are 
devoting to like if, if you could just like harness the the energy it takes to like channel that hatred towards yourself absolutely. if you could use it for something else Good. absolutely oh, absolutely so much time and energy and brain power and absolutely and that's what I did honestly I stopped focusing on me and I started doing something for other people because I really from the bottom of my heart believe that if you're going through stuff and you feel bad about yourself maybe stop paying attention to yourself so much and start paying attention to helping other people. It doesn't mean that your problems go away, but it it makes you see things differently and it makes you see the world a little differently. You're doing amazing. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. Maven America is a joint production of Pretty Good Friends and First Look Media. This episode was produced by Anna Adlerstein and myself, Maeve Higgins, with help from Stephanie Tam, Starley Kine, Shana Feinberg, Julie Smith-Clem, Naomi Westwater-Weeks, Erica Romero, Matt Chills and Pat Masita-Miller, who wrote our theme music. This show was engineered by Cameron Drews and Ted Muldoon, with music by Sending Letters to the Sea. Thanks to Lital Malad and the First Look Massive. Special shout out to Kevin and Joanne Townley. Oh, please rate and review this show on iTunes so other cool people can find it. And stop by our Instagram, Facebook and Twitter for photos and videos of the great Yemi Amu and more. All right, that's it. Thank you so much for listening and Happy New Year to you all. We don't have a show next week, but we'll be back with a vengeance in a nice way on January 10th. I mean, everyone actually has a formula in their mind. They're just not articulating it. Yeah. I think we should actually make a podcast that's completely about finding me a husband. <laughs> I'm not even joking. I would really appreciate that. Yeah. And on my first Tinder date, I would be like, have you ever had a cold sore? How many times have you cracked a phone screen? I think these are really important <laughs> fine, like questions. Seriously. Seriously. Um, I, what was have you ever had a cold sore that was so big it cracked your phone screen? <laughs> As you're talking on your phone. In which case, you could be the one. 